I want to thank you for being choosing to be a part of this journey. I'll not take time to do great chunks of text. I've looked for at several different study materials, and um, some people do Job in 13 lessons. I don't honestly know how they do that unless they just you know you've got 40 something chapters, and that's you know that's a, that's a lot of that's a lot of information. Um, I'm not going to do a lot of expository explanation, except when I feel like there's time to give maybe some background information or there's a turn of phrase that I feel like would be something that would be of interest, uh, either to me or you. Um, I want to be practical uh, in what I put before us. I want you to walk away with something that you could live out daily in your life. I'll also try not to be lengthy, but try as the operative word. Uh, but instead, I want to put the power of God's words before us <clears throat> to do as he chooses with them. That being said, let's get right into the text. <coughs> right into the text. Job chapter 1, verse 1. And that's about as far as we'll get tonight. Uh, so Job chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> just, that's just what I'm, I, that's, that's how I started. I thought, well, you know, I'm, and that's how, how it will be. You know, the next one comes out. Um, in chapter one, I think verse seven, where God says, "Have you considered? Have you considered my servant Job?" And we'll spend some time talking about being considered, uh, but that's next week. Now there will be times when we interrupt the study to do other things. For instance, our second Sunday is our singing night. Uh, there will be fifth Sundays along the way, you know that kind of thing. So uh, just know I'll try to always keep you prepared that this is coming up. This is what's going to go on. Uh, we'll try to record them if we can. I'll try to, if you want to, I'll send you the sermon notes if you want to read them, if you don't happen to be here. But always plan to be here on Sunday nights because we don't want to miss this. Job chapter 1, verse 1. Well, come next week. Come next week. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, this is where I do that point of interest thing for me, because the first thing that I, I did when I read that, I thought, what is this thing called the land of us? I mean, that sounds a whole lot like the land of Oz. Yes. Okay. So I'm kind of thinking, okay, I need I need a reference to that before I think it's just a never, never land somewhere else kind of thing. Uh, it's not that far to connect the dots of people in the book of Genesis as that story of faith begins to come from other places, answering the call of God by faith to become a part of his plan of redemption. Let me give you three examples, one of those being Job. First of all is Melchizedek. We meet Melchizedek as this character who just appears in Genesis 14. He's a priest who comes from a place called Salem or Salem, okay, which in Hebrew means peace. Uh, so he comes out, he meets Abraham after his victory over the kings. Uh, who had been warring, uh, and he blesses Abraham. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 2, it says, He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And so he becomes for us in Genesis an archetype of Jesus Christ. How do you know? Because the Hebrew writer pulls it back and says he becomes an archetype of Jesus Christ. It's that idea where Jesus is then... Um, our Prince of Peace, our King of Kings, our righteousness, our redemption. First uh, Corinthians 1 and verse 30, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So we make this character. 
He's not in the lineage of Abraham. He's not in the lineage of Adam as we can read it coming down through there. He's just a character who appears from a place called Salim, okay, or Salem, or however you want to say that. Uh, and he comes, and he, but he's a part of God's plan. He's a part of, he has his moment in there to teach us something about Jesus, even way back in Genesis. Now go to Abraham. Abraham, who we meet for the first time in Genesis chapter 11, living in a place called Ur. Sounds a lot like a place called Uz, but it's Ur. They're about Chicago to Miami difference in, in their direction. Okay, one, they're, they're just that far apart on, on the map. He trusts God and begins an amazing journey of faith, becoming God's friend. We read in James chapter 2 and verse 23. And the father of the faithful, Romans chapter 4 and verse 16. So out of nowhere, I mean, you just, Genesis chapter 11, you meet this character named Abraham. Okay, he's one of the descendants of Adam, Adam living in a place called Ur. And God says, you know what? You're going to, you're going to be a part of this if you will answer, if you will follow me, if you'll do what I say. And so Abraham answers the call of God. He walks to the promised land. And there's this amazing thing that happens. God offers him a lasting promise that you will bless the world through your descendants, that you will receive a chosen land, that you will have a special child. And it's not so hard to see Jesus in all of that. Is it not? Okay. That the promises made to Abraham are the promises made to the world. Jesus becomes that special child. Jesus comes bearing the promise of a land that is beyond, you know, that's a land that is fairer than day, we sing. You know, so Jesus is the bearer of the promise uh, that he's going to lead us from here to a promised land. And also that Jesus is preparing for us a place in God's heaven and he's giving us a promise of salvation. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 39 through 41, where Peter says, The promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. Salvation is then through no other. When you stop and you think about that, the, the sermon that Peter, the ending of Peter's sermon says, the world you live in is, is a world of chaos, hurt, and violence. It's crooked and it's perverse. But God, in his wisdom and love, sent his son to give us a promise. If we will in faith walk that path with him. Abraham did it and becomes the archetype of our Savior. What does a friend of God look like? Okay. What do, what do faithful people look like? Okay. They are not perfect, but they are uh, resilient and determined. We'll talk more about that. Now let's talk about Job. Okay. We have one that lives in, in the land of Salem. One who lives, lives in the place of Ur. And a Job who lives in the land of Uz. And scholars have a hard time placing him in the timeline of Bible history. In our Bible curriculum this week, in fact, uh, in our Bible classes, we're going to talk about Job after the flood. And we, the, the lady who did the curriculum said, I'm going to put him in here, kind of thing. Some Bible scholars uh, put, him, uh, put him earlier, later than the flood, kind of thing. So the idea is that I'm no scholar, but there are some clues, I think, that make me confident that Job is real. Because that was floated out at some point. Job is just more kind of a, a poetic device kind of thing. Uh, kind of like uh, some other not real people in, in literature. Job chapter 1 and verse 3 says that Job was the greatest of all the people of the East. It's great to know. But 
you know, but east of where? Bible archaeology tells us that the raiders who destroy or steal Job's herbs, or herds, sorry, his herds and livestock, in Job chapter 1 and verse, verse 15, are called sobbins, okay? Um, I don't remember if you remember seven wives or seven brothers. You remember that? You know, you know y'all are not old enough, okay? Uh, anyway, there was this musical, and they used to sing about the sobbing women, okay? Uh, so anyway, the idea was, you know, where, who are these sobbing people, these Sabean or sobbing women? The Sabeans came from Saba, which is also said Sheba, all right? And so that puts it in what is the modern Yemen, okay, which is to the south and to the, let's give my directions, to the south and the east of, of Jerusalem, Okay. So it puts it on the other side of the Dead Sea, pretty much, kind of down in, down in the northern part of that um, Arabian continent. But you're going to know the second raiding party in Job chapter 1 and verse 17 is a raiding party of the Chaldeans. Now the Chaldeans are from southern Mesopotamia, which is now modern Turkey. So instead of coming up from Yemen, they're coming down from Turkey, all right? Um, and the Chaldeans were absorbed into the Assyrian, into the Babylonian empires, and that happened, that became the Persian Empire, okay, that you may be familiar with. So the Chaldean tribes then are absorbed. So the land of Uz is somewhere between the range of the Sabians and the Chaldean. Basically, again, Miami to Chicago, okay, or at this point, you know, Miami to Vancouver, uh, sort of thing. It's that big of a space. So in the big middle of that, there's enough that they, they traveled that far north or south to take away Job's herds and flocks and, and whatever. Lamentations 4 and verse 21 places Edom in the land of Uz. They use them interchangeably. So you might want to mark Lamentations 4 and verse 21 out into the margin or in your notes and look that up at some point. Uh, it's a kind of the way the Bible becomes its own commentary because in their minds, uh, when Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, to him, Uz and Edom, kind of they were part of each other. Indicating that Edomite territory had grown or expanded into the land of Uz. That's supported at the, by the fact that one of Job's comforters named Eliphaz was a Temanite. Teman was a city in Edom, not far from the spectacular city of Petra, which was also in Edom, or south of Jerusalem. Another false comforter, Zophar, is designated as a Naamatite, okay, which is some suggest refers to a mountain in northwestern Arabia, okay, which would put it not far from uh, Egypt. And then the third false comforter, Bildad, is called a Shuhite. Uh, Shuhite is a descendant of Shua, who is a son of Abraham in Genesis 25 and verse 2. So that kind of gives you an idea that uh, somewhere around Genesis 25, then Job happens after that sort of idea. Uh, similarly, the younger, wiser companion, Elihu, in the book of Job, is called a Buzzite. He is descended from then Buzz in Genesis 22, verse 21, who is a nephew of Abraham, who belongs to, uh, and that happens up north. So, finally, Jeremiah 25, verses 20 and 21, refers to all the kings of the land of Uz, okay? and includes in the land of Uz the kings of Ammon, Moab, Edom, and even Philistia. So you're talking about uh, the land of Uz being somewhere south and east of the promised land of, e of Israel. As the children of Israel leave Egypt, and they wander through the wilderness, they come through... And they, they try to seek passage you know, in, through, the, through the land of Edom. They are denied passage, and so they have to go around and enter. They end up entering the promised land then from the, from the, uh, from the eastern side of the Jordan, okay, uh, and coming across to, uh, over at Jericho, so the Edom. But also remember that these are their cousins because 
Jacob, who is Israel, okay, the children of Israel, okay, Jacob is brother to Esau. Esau is another another name for Edom, okay, meaning red or hairy. So the Edomites and the Israelites are cousins, but they have their own kingdom anyway. So this is back in the day. So wherever Salem, Ur, or Uz happen to be, I think we could be within our conclusion to say that they are us. Okay, that's what I want you to see. More than anything else, people are living in places unknown to others. If you were to ask Abraham, where is Olney? He'd look at you and go, we'd say, well, it's between Canada and Mexico. And he'd go, sure, great, you know, fantastic, whatever that means. So he wouldn't have any clue either. But we are just people like that. If you were to ask Melchizedek, you know, you know, we're we're talking about a congregation of people, you know, living for the Lord and all. And he would look at you and kind of go, "Well, they live between Los Angeles and New York," and they kind of go, "Great, you know, as long as they're living for the Lord." That was the point. I mean, that was what they would clue in on. And so, in like manner, we would as well, because they're they're just people like us living in places unknown to others, living out their speck and their span of existence. But they're believing and worshiping God and answering his call with a faith to do his will for his purposes. That's who we are. And I think that's why Job is so relevant to us today, because them are us. Okay, us could be us. All right. Now, let's talk about the takeaways for all of us. I have two. That's the point of interest. And that's kind of the background that I told you that I try not to spend much time on. But hopefully it was something of interest. There are two takeaways. For whatever reason, when we approach the book of Job, it seems to be, I can't believe this is happening. I mean, that's how we see Job doing this, okay? We feel that way a lot ourselves. Why is this happening? We have this tremendous angst about us. It's a, it's a sadness that we carry with us that just kind of causes us to, you know, this just keeps happening. We're like the, the Peanuts character that has the little cloud over him. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and, and we, we kind of walk that way. We feel that way. It, it happening to me, happening to others, happening to loved ones, to other believers. The question we wrestle with most often, okay, in our loss, in our sadness, in our burden, is why? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why them? And how many of us have ever asked those questions? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why them? You know, sure. I mean, if you're really honest with yourself, you ask yourself that question because you wanted it to be different. You wanted it to be something other than what it is. Right? And somehow we kind of identify with Job in his, in his loss because we've asked that same question. The backlash is that nasty question that we keep getting asked all the time. Is that how could a good and loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? Heard that one? Yeah. How could a good and loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? Job was good people. Now, why would that happen to them? Now, we see Job as a victim. Okay? There he is on the on the ash, you know, on the on the heap, you know, taking the broken pottery and scraping the boils on his skin. And you can just see him there and his wife is over in one corner telling him, curse God and die. And his friends are saying, well, if you hadn't sinned, God would have done this to you. And he's all alone and he's there and you just feel sorry for poor old Job. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. 
funny, well not funny, but I don't get the sense that God sees Job as a victim. Throughout that whole thing, I don't see, the thing is that as I've studied it out, and, and, and I don't, God doesn't see him as a victim. Now, God allows Satan to test Job. God allows Job to defend his blamelessness, even to confront God over the seeming unfairness of it all. At the end of the book, God speaks to Job not to answer his questions, not to lay to rest the theological idea of, of bad things happening to good people or why do we have to do without those that we love. The thing is, is that God answers his question, but to remind Job that after all is said and done, God is God and Job is not. Wow. Not quite what I was wanting. And so there's this kind of nagging disappointment with God. As we, as we move into the next couple of lessons, we'll do a lot in, in the book of Deuteronomy. There's one verse in particular where it says, we cannot know the secret things of God. There's a reason that God does things. There's a reason that God allows certain things to happen. There's a reason why. Okay, there is, there is a, a judgment made on a, on a people. There is a, an intervention that is personal with one person that's not repeated with others. It's not that God's willy-nilly or capricious or whatever else. It's just that God has his ways. And in saying that, then God is God and Job is not. God is God and you are not. And we keep trying to make God understandable. We would love to have a great big old book like this that just explained God. If you want to make God laugh, try to explain him or make plans. Either way. Right? Or tell somebody, you know, well, the way to do this is. That's the greatest way to make God laugh. Trust me. So, having said that, the first takeaway I see is this. You can write this one down if you want to. God trusts us to deal with the heavy matters of life. God trusts us to deal with the heavy matters of life far more than we may want to trust ourselves. And probably far more than we want to carry the weight of those matters. We don't want to hurt we don't want to suffer. We don't want to lose or do without. We don't like it when the air conditioner goes out. We don't like it when the lights go out. We don't like it when the food is cold. We don't like it. And we are like the proverbial Goldilocks because we try something and we like it and it's too hot, something is too cold, and something else is just right. And we go through that with everything in our life. You shop at certain places because you like them. You either do it online or in person. You go to a certain person to cut your hair because you like the way they do it and you left the one you didn't because they didn't. And you buy a certain brand of this, you, buy, you, know, you, you travel a certain way of that, and the bottom line is, is that then we try to, that kind of comes over into our experience with God and says, God, I don't like this. And God says, so, I am God, you are not. But God, I don't think I want to do this. God says, I trust you. I'll never forget, growing up, we had this backyard, this incredible backyard where I grew up in this one house. And all the neighborhood kids would come to my backyard to play football. This was a guarantee that I would get chosen on one of the football teams, okay, one or the other. So 
you know, being a little round boy, you know, this was cool, okay? When you're not very fast and you're not very good at that age at football, you got picked on a team. You were good, okay? Well, it was my yard. I closed the gate. Everybody goes home, okay? So I got picked, right? So everybody would come over, and it was football season, and we were playing football hard and heavy, and it was a Wednesday night, and my parents had gotten religion, okay? And what I mean is, is that we had started going to church regularly. We made, they made a choice somewhere right around third grade. They made a choice. We were going to go Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. We were going to do that because it was good for our family. We were going to do that because we needed to learn about God. We needed to do that because that's what Christians do. They forgot to tell me that you have to quit playing football on Wednesday afternoon to get ready to go to church. So one one of those Wednesday afternoons, Mom comes to the door and says, Come in. It's time to get ready for church. But Mom, we're playing football. I'm on the team. They don't give me the ball, but I get to run around and chase everybody, and it's in there in my yard, and I'm a popular guy. This is a good thing in a neighborhood where you're one of the younger children, kind of thing. She says, no, you come in. Being very obedient, I, I come in. But they did a wise thing at that point. I know I've told you this story before, but bear with me. They said, we're going to church tonight. I said, I don't want to go. I want to go outside and play with my friends. And this is what my dad said to me. He said, I'm going to trust that you make the right decision. And to this day, 50 years later, I still remember standing at that window, looking out of my backyard where my friends were still playing football and weeping, wanting to be there and knowing I would be here because that's the right thing to do. After we were on our way to church, my mom turns around, pats me on the knee and says, you made the right choice. I think when we talk about the heavy matters of life, the things we don't want to deal with, the things we don't want to suffer, the idea that, that we have to do without, do with less, that we have to have pain in our life. God says, I trust you to do the right thing. People of faith are called upon by God to do unthinkable things. Things like forgive your enemies. Go the second mile. Reconcile with a brother. Trust life and death to something called the hope of a resurrection that none of us have ever seen, but we live that way. We're asked to suffer for the gospel and other things that are all in the name of trust and obedience. Now, these things change the world, but they come in at awful cost personally and in our relationships. And yet God stands us at the window and he says, you are the poster child for how to do the impossible. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26, with God, is it with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. Is that not who we are? You want something practical to go through the week with? God stands you in front of the window and he says, with them it is impossible, with me all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yes? That's your first takeaway. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
long reading. Stay with me in your text and we'll read it together. First, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 and following to the end of the chapter. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested or shown in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I don't know about you. I think I'm going to read that tomorrow morning. That's my Monday morning pulpit right there. I am God's poster child for making the right choice because I believe and so I speak. So I speak by how I live. The other takeaway I see is this. As if that's not enough. The other takeaway is this. Bad things happen anyway. You learn that? I don't care how much in control you think you are. Bad things happen anyway. And since bad things happen anyway, the best thing I can do is to be prepared. Back to Job 1 and verse 1. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There are three things I can make as a commitment. Write these down. Number one, I can commit myself to being blameless and upright. I commit myself to being blameless and upright. It is a daily decision to live the way I should live in the arena of life. I learned that from God. With God as my guide, Psalm 119 verse 105 says his word, a lamp unto my feet, walking in step with his Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, through 23 says... I am present at all times with God at my side, preparing to encounter the bad things. How do I encounter the bad things since they happen anyway? And this is how I do it. I am the child of God. I am his poster child for what to do in bad times. And I meet it with love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Other people fall apart. They despair. They fold up. They crumble. They question God. They blame God. Not you. Not me. We are the people who have been committing ourselves to being blameless and upright. 
Secondly, I can commit myself to fearing God and keeping His commandments. You ever, you ever heard somebody say, who can face adversity, tragedy, or loss without a God of comfort, peace, and promise? How do you do this without a God in your life? Am I right? You've heard people say that. How do people do this without God? And that's the truth. Where do you get such wisdom to face these things? To persevere, to endure, to learn the art of patience as they unfold. You know, wreaking havoc, if you will, these bad things, leaving a wake of weakness and destruction and despair. When all the world around us seems to be falling apart, it's that thing that I commit to fearing God and keeping His commandments. Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in His way of living, God has set out a path that navigates these hard times with wise choices. You navigate the bad times with wise choices. You fear God and keep His commandments. Isn't that what Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13 says? The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I can commit to living blameless and upright. I can commit to fearing God and keeping His commandments. I can commit myself to turning away from evil. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Why would I want to be a part of that world that compounds the harm, the loss, the revenge, the misery? Why would, I, why would I want to turn my back on people who are suffering when those bad things happen? Why would I want to be a part of that world? Why would I want to surrender to a darker side of the soul that craves the drama of chaos? Turning away from evil is the brighter side of hope, help, and love that looks forward and pursues that way where something good remains with us, goes before us, and always blesses us. I want to be a part of the good in this world. I want to be a part of what God is doing in this world. I want to commit myself from turning away from evil and doing what builds this world into what God intended for it to be in the first place. So let's wrap it up. James chapter 5 verse 11. That was enough, wasn't it? Okay. Can you live that this week? Sure. James chapter 5 verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Your text may say endurance or patience. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Isn't that amazing? James, hundreds of years later, thousand years later. James looks back on Job and he says, you know what I see? I see somebody who was steadfast in the hard times. And I see God being merciful and compassionate toward him. I consider us blessed to have, had, to have the trust that God puts in us. God trusts you to survive the bad things happening around us. And the only positive that I see takeaway is to think that those things prepare me. Okay? Well, the only way I see us happening, the only way I see us living through the bad things that happen to us is for us to prepare to be steadfast in our faith. And how do I do that? I commit myself. 
I commit myself every day to being blameless and upright. I commit myself to fearing God and keeping His commandments. I commit myself to turning from evil. I want to trust the purposes of God. And in doing so, I will find myself on that side of the things that happen to me. Experiencing His compassion and mercy. And I believe that that's what we are called to do.